Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And then, and then it was eerily quiet. And then my mind was kind of like, you know, the head in the fishbowl. But it takes me into the bathroom and says, this is how you brush your teeth. Brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat. But there were two girls, and it was like, you'll have to give us a ride. You can't fill us, though. He can't refuse us. He'll let us in his car. Thoughts were all alone in this empty void. You know, the head in the fishbowl. This doesn't look right. They got close enough where he said he could see. Alright guys, well we are here on Conspira Normal. It is we are starting out the show with the guest today. Uh, because it is 11 o'clock for us and again, five o'clock to calling someone in Ireland this time. And we have Marty Stalker on the line and he is the director of the Netflix. Well, the film that is on Netflix documentary film called hostage to the devil. Uh, Marty, welcome to conspiracy normal. We're, we're glad to have you. Yeah. Great to be on mate. Great to be on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was going to kind of want to go through your background first, you know, uh, yeah. where you are, where you're based out of, uh, and how you became interested in the subject of what we're going to talk about tonight, which is Malachi Martin. How did that come to be an interest to you? It was um, about five years ago, I was approached by some film producers in Northern Ireland, um, based in Belfast, and um, they approached me uh, about. They'd seen some of my previous short film work, uh, et cetera, and, and, and they approached me about doing a documentary about this um, former Kerryman, um, former Jesuit priest called Father Malachi Martin. So yeah, that was about five, just over five years ago now. So um, yeah, so it's it's been a it's been a long passion project, but it was my first my first feature project. So I was I just jumped at it really, and I was uh, I was itching to do my first feature, or, or basically to to prove myself on the at the feature film length. 
Sure. Had you had any interest in Malachi Martin before? Had you had any kind of uh, idea of who he was and and what was the what he was about? So the so the, the two film producers in question uh, who approached me actually wanted to do a feature film about the man, but unfortunately, nobody yeah. outside outside of small parts of America really knew who he was, and and for them to make to base a feature film about this man was was, was a bit of a gamble. So they they thought about using the documentary as a as a springboard into into more content surrounding the man. So it's a very clever move. So um, yeah, but 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 previously, no, I'd, I'd heard nothing about the man, and he was from Kerry, which is a few hours down the road. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, no, it was. Um, you know, it was it was a shock that I'd never heard about this man before. But for me, it was a dream come true to to research about this man in question. Yeah, I mean, he was definitely an interesting person for sure. Um, you know, it, let's talk about his life and talk about his background and some of the things that you found out about him. Yeah. Uh, what's well, what was the kind of like the, what stood out and what stood out for you most uh, with him? about him that stood out to you? I think, uh, well, when I, when I first got on board the project, I, 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 to be fair, I spent the first two years trying to prove facts about the man. There were a lot of misconceptions in the internet. You know, right. uh, I, I soon discovered the internet is not a good platform to research about somebody's life. You know, there's all sorts <laughs> of forum, for Catholic forums and, and uh. Uh, tinfoil hat forums and conspiracy theories and rabbit holes. So for me, it was, um, I needed to reach out to people who actually met the man in person and, and to actually, you know, I, I had spent time with the man. That was important. So I spent a good two years just trying to prove fact after fact after fact. And, and then the Vatican's more closed down than the CIA are. So trying to get information out of them, trying to get squeeze information out of them was difficult. And, um, so for me, it, it was obvious, you know, whoever, I had met this man in person. Maliki Martin had touched him in some way, you know, uh, in a positive way. He was a spiritual director to many. He don't forget he arrived in in America after the Second Vatican Council, and there was a lot of American Catholics at the time who were just disillusioned with where the church was going and the faith was going. And and he he ans- he answered a lot of questions. He became the the front man and um, to ask to answer questions about the Second Vatican Council. And obviously, as, as some of your viewers, some of your listeners will know, that he actually left during the uh, Second Vatican Council stage. He, he just felt disillusioned himself. And he's a traditional Catholic mm-hmm. in his faith. And he, he just found the whole modernizing, modernizing of the church just an absolute sort of uh, backwards way to go. Now, he was a Jesuit, correct? That's um, correct, Jack. He, he was the special forces of the Catholic faith, yes. Right, 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 yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of weird conspiracy theories about the Jesuits. Oh, yes. I'm very familiar uh and and there's some good things about them as well that you hear um if you've ever seen the movie the mission that's a a movie i film mostly about the jesuits um and some of the actual good things that they did i guess it paints the jesuits in a good light i guess you could say that uh but he also was one of the claims that he made was that he worked on the dead sea scrolls yeah, that was correct. That that was that that is correct. I mean, that was that was one fact that I could prove that he he actually was working uh, on the Dead Sea Scrolls when he said he was. Yeah, that was something that uh, I had never heard about him before. I think I had briefly heard that yeah. he was a Jesuit, but that he had actually been a part of that group was pretty amazing. Uh, yeah. yeah, and this is this is why this is why Father Martin 
was always compared to Father Merrin and in, in, in Blatty, yeah, uh, the yeah, Exorcist. Yeah. So, and that's that's. I mean, I, I don't believe that's true, but a lot of a lot of press, particularly in the UK, when the film was released uh, this uh, last month, or they just found the correlations between Father Merrin's character and Father Malachi Martin. You know, as he is an archaeologist and working with Dead Sea Scrolls, and then he looked at Father Merrin's character, and they they, they just made their own sort mm-hmm. of mind up in a sense. Yeah, Father Marin at the beginning of the Exorcist film working in Iraq, you know, yeah. doing the archaeological digs. Right, yeah. right. And he, and so was, uh, was he in Rome at the, at that certain point during the Second Vatican Council? Yeah, yeah, he was, he was in Rome. He was right hand man to a uh, Cardinal Bayer, uh, Augustine Bayer, who was German, a German cardinal. So he was, yeah, he was in the, in the heart and soul of, of the Vatican as, as this massive change was happening. And obviously like uh, he, he amongst other hundreds of nuns and, and priests left in their droves. So uh, yeah. it was, it was a very, uh, it was a very, yeah, just a very important, well, to some people it's a very important event in, in the Catholic faith. Well, let's talk about Vatican too. I mean, let's talk about what that is. I mean, kind of establish the background there about what happened with, uh, with the Vatican, kind of the reform of the Vatican. And this takes place, I believe, in the early 60s. Yeah, well, 1959 to be precise, but then, and then it took a few years to uh, to actually uh, modernize uh, and, and to rewrite the liturgies, etc. Yeah, so yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a massive time, uh, a massive, it was a, had a massive impact on the, on the, on the Catholic faith. And yeah, it was, uh, yeah, and Father Martin was, was getting stuck in as well and and soon realized that you know this was not the way he wanted to to go and and, and left what what certain things changed uh during Vatican II? oh it's um trying to trying to simplify this trying to get get, get this uh, sure sure get this, it, get this across yeah it, it is complex it is yeah, it's, it's extremely extremely complex but the, the way i the, the way we describe it in the in, in my film is they just tried to get with the modern world they tried the 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 they felt like they were a lot of people felt alienated with the Catholic faith and, and they wanted to sort of modernize uh, e- even the way the, the liturgies were written and, and, uh, and what Father Martin felt, it was just, uh, it was just going, going in a direction that which he felt. So it was weakening, weakening the faith and especially the liturgies themselves. It, mm-hmm. it was just, uh, that, that's, that, that's the sort of uh, easiest way to explain it. But obviously it took, it took a lot, it took a long time to happen and there was a lot of, uh, there's a lot of intricate, intricate sort of um incidents which happened in there but uh that's that's the way I, the way i describe it in the sort of uh elevator pitch is just yeah they just try to modernize modernize the faith right uh it, it, you know he a lot of people don't realize just what you know happened there and you have uh, a priest in the film that talks about how in the 1950s a lot of people were either converting to the Catholicism, people were kind yeah. of coming to it in droves, and then yeah. the Vatican Council hits, and I believe that it lasts it lasts a couple of years before they come out with yeah. the whole Vatican II concept. And he says in the film, then all of a sudden, that just kind of stopped. Yeah. And people began to seek other, I guess, other means, I suppose, uh, well, even it's, though, it's, 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 it's a tradition as Catholics who, who just right. felt like, you know, the modernizing these reforms, you know, it just, it was just, they felt it was so detrimental to, to their faith and, yeah. and, uh, and, and left. And like I said before in, in droves and it, it was just, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't a great time for them. And, and, um, they just saw 
what what they were seeing in front of them was not the faith that they they had you know committed to from day one. So yeah. So how did Malachi's his his viewpoint on his viewpoints on traditional Catholic Catholicism differ from mainstream Catholicism at, after Vatican II? What well, would be some of the differences that you saw? Uh, he was well. It, to be fair, Father Martin's views, his traditional Catholic views, had never changed um, before or or, or post uh, Vatican II. His is, is faith sure. always remained the same, uh, and obviously he he always talked about you know bloodstained guilt, and and he was very strong on his on, on his uh, views about abortion and homosexuality, etc. It's very obviously to some very very controversial views, etc. So we're very um, very traditional. The traditional mass was important to him. He felt like the 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 rewrite and the, and, and the mass, which was now which now happened after Vatican II, was was, was weak. And um, he, he he would when he when he was in America, he would um, you know he would perform his own mass in his, in his privately, you know, and that was a traditional mass. And uh, yeah, since Vatican II, it was just a, mo- a whole rewrite, and he just felt like you know this was this was this was not. Why he? This is not the the way of what God God wants them to, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 it's, it's very in the in the film we do we we do we we touch on it very briefly just right. to give a background of Father Martin and and uh, yeah, so we don't go too much into it to be fun to to be fair. Yeah. So you know, he comes to the United States. About how old is he when he comes to the U.S. to New York City? Ooh. So he arrives. Uh, I think it was about nineteen sixty-nine, I believe. Um, uh, let me just check. Yeah, nineteen. Yeah, nineteen sixty-nine, I believe. So um, I'm not sure how old he was. I can't do the maths now, right now. Um, but yeah, so he yeah. arrived about nineteen sixty-nine. Yeah, probably. Oh, sorry, sorry, wrong, wrong, wrong. Nineteen sixty-six. Sorry, probably in his forties. Probably like yeah. in his maybe late thirties, early forties. I would probably say. I think he was born in the twenties. Yeah. So, what were his views on exorcism? Uh, what uh, you know, he had these. He had also had this concept of perfect possession. I mean, what did that mean? What did that mean to him? Well, perfect possession was was one of two things which Father Martin really really sort of um made him you know sit up at night and, uh, and to be extremely scared of which was which was perfect possession and also generational satanism it was the first one being perfect perfectly possessed you know he he would he said he's only met a handful in his life but uh he it, it's it's the willingness to they accept they accept satan in their lives and and it's it's nothing strange it's it, it's an ex, it's a full acceptance of mm-hmm. uh, you know they accept it in and and and, and nothing it, it's not alien to them it, this is this is normal and they live live everyday lives and some some in very very powerful um, positions and roles and but he would say that they would he, he would just you know he, it, it just they were just seeing them walking walking around the streets and just 
you know, these these perfectly possessed humans walking around uh, the subways and uh, on the streets of New York as well. Just it just it just creeped them out, and yeah. and obviously uh, generational Satanism being you know families families worshiping Satan and and passing it on to generations of family members, just like the, you know worshiping God for them, worshiping Satan was normal. Again, it was just this acceptance of. Of, of, of the devil and Satan in their lives. And, and that was passed down from generation to generation. So we, we had children born into this environment, which, which really, which, which scared him. And then he said in the seventies, mm. it was, it was rife with uh, satanic rituals and occult activity. Yeah. How did he, how, how could he tell someone was perfectly possessed? Did he have, I guess, through the training uh, that he could, that he could probably tell yeah, I, th- I think one of, one of the things in the one of the one of the sort of um, criteria in the film we, we, we look at is is sometimes it's not what you see on camera or or sometimes what you see with your own eyes. It, it's the it's the sense in the room. It's it's this atmosphere in the room where you just you, you just know when you're in the room with somebody. You just it, it's this weird. It's this different sense that you've got. Mm-hmm. It's, you, you just know and. Uh, he, he he would always say like you know um, just it's 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 more about an experience rather than seeing it if you're if you know what I mean it's it's experience it in that room and um, and he and he would also see a little they, they, they would let him they would let him in for a very short space of time a little like a shutter on a camera he would he would just see something which was not right and and he, and he would let him in for a little tiny sort of half a split second and that that to him was 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 just um, was enough and and there, there is actually a story which I couldn't prove in the film which is about David Berkowitz the son of Sam who huh. um, believed that father he, he, he had summoned Father Martin to his uh, to his cell and because uh, he wanted Father Martin to write his, his, bi- his biography so it was it was a difficult time and uh, it was just when Hostage the Devil came out and became a bestseller and my Father Martin became the, the go-to man about possession and, and obviously Berkowitz at the time believed he was uh, perfectly possessed and but trying you know, for me, trying to find that that record of Father Martin signing in was was uh, was crucial to me. But I just, yeah. I just couldn't get that evidence. So, but yeah, he's um, yeah he he was. Well, what I found about Father Martin was he was very real about the whole thing. There was no sensationalism. There was no. He wasn't an ego trip, and and it, you know it, it, this was a real battle to him. And right. you know and he and and it's the question in the film. You know, what was he was he God's warrior? You know, did he tell the truth? Or was he telling the truth, or was he an absolute sociopath? He, he writing writing on using the media to, to you know, for money purposes and and, and to and to you know and to bring more revenue into 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 the house. But uh, as an audience member, it's a unique experience when you watch it, and, and I can't answer every question for you. So yeah, at the end of the film, you, I mean, we were only scratching the surface. So um, at the end of the film, you'll you'll have a sort of idea of who you thought the man was. Yeah, and you know he was definitely accused of sensationalism. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think uh, well, particularly when Hostage the Devil came out. Uh, obviously, when you when you, there's an element in the film where we we, we see William Blatty, who was not happy because right. it's three years after the release of the book, and and there is a lot of reports of uh, the the first sort of cr- critical reviews of the book were were not very nice at all. So at the time, William Blatty believed that he he should be the only one writing about the subject matter at the time. I don't know why, but this is what he believed, and and uh, yeah, he 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 would he wrote a very scathing review about the book, and uh, yeah, Father Martin was 
you know, was accused of being sensational. Because at the end of the day, and this is from my own investigations, exorcism is quite a mundane practice. It's it's quite a mundane experience. You know, it's, sure. it's prayer. You know, it's, sure. it's not what you see in the it's not what you see in the, in the movies because right. obviously movies movies are trying to sell you know entertainment. So. And most of the time, it's it, it, some exorcisms can, can last two up to two years, even longer. So it's not you know it doesn't happen over a weekend or over an evening. So it's uh, it's quite a mundane and lengthy process. And uh, I think uh, like me and, and Maliki, similar to Maliki, at the end of the day, we are selling entertainment. So we do need to sort of find a middle ground with do we go sensational with it, with it and authentic? Do we try and find that middle ground and think about both of us sort of try to do that in our in our, in our work. Sure. And it, definitely, I mean, he, the way that he described it, you know, he talked a little bit, you do, you do show a clip of him talking about the exorcist and he said, you know, that there are some of the things, everything you see in that movie is true. You know, there's yeah. no, the head spinning around a complete 360. You don't see that, but yeah. there were other aspects to him that were true, but he did kind of also downplay it a little bit as well, because definitely, you know, you see that movie that's, it's Hollywood for sure. Oh, yeah. uh, it's probably one of the scariest films ever made, but it's it's definitely Hollywoodized, and you definitely get that you know uh, the sense that sensationalist as well, right? Uh, yeah, you get you get like an exorcist who who, who in twenty years of being exorcist exorcist has seen one manifestation, which was uh, for example a child levitating off the floor. But that's yeah. one one in twenty years of service. So you know, right. and I, and from and when I first uh, was approached. By the, for the project, I, I was initially going right. Let's let's hook up a, a room full of cameras and, and and let's bring in a real exorcist and and, and person who was suffering and uh, let's let's document this real exorcism. But at the end of the day, you know, the, the likelihood of actually recording anything mm. was was quite low. But also, even if we did somehow you know miraculously record a manifestation, people would still think we rigged the room up with ropes or wires or CGI anyway. Right, so right. It was, there's, there's no point. And um, like I said before, one of the, one of the elements in the film is it's about experience. It's not about what you see. It's, it's, it's having your own unique experiences with this, with this area. Well, the, the priest that you interview in the film, um, uh, that also was talking about Vatican too, that we just mentioned, I mean, he brought up a good point and something that I never thought of before that yeah. baptism is a form yes. of exorcism. Yeah. That was yeah. That when he brought that up in the interview, I, I was like you. I was like wow, and I did yeah. a little bit of research, and he's totally right. And yeah, that that for me also was a. I mean, I, I, I my education on the subject uh, increased as well while making this. So no, it was a it was a great point. Yeah, because when you think about it just a little bit, when you extend it just a little bit, you say, yeah, he's right. That is that is true. That's that is exactly exactly what it is. Uh, you do mention in the film uh, the exorcism of Annalise Michelle. Um, yes. Do you have any? What's your? Because you know that's the film. The 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 exorcism of Emily Rose is based off of that film. Is based off of that event. Uh, do you have any? What's your personal opinion on that case? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, the the I mean, first of all, the reason for adding that small section in the film is just looking at the responsibilities that priests and exorcists and bishops, you know, have with, sure. with, with these cases. And, and one of the, one of the sort of key points in the film is that the exorcist in Rome would say you 90, 90 plus percent of his cases can be explained and, and cured by science. So they, they are very thorough 
in their investigations before they even get involved themselves. So science will always come first. And, oh, you know, with, with, with the Annalise, Annalise uh, case, um, it, it's the photographs which get which get me the recorded mm-hmm. photographs and yeah. I spent I spent a lot of time listening to the audio. I had, wow. I had an how, can, how can you I, do I, that, man? <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, well, I know. It's, <laughs> I, I, I've spent five years listening to you know to the subject matter, and, yeah. uh, and, and it, obviously it was in German, but I I had an English transcription. And right. I was reading along as as she was and she was mentioning stuff like Hitler and so it was just a if you, if you can try and find it online, it's a fascinating read. Some yeah. of the stuff that comes up, it comes out with and. Um, and again, I just don't want to. I, I just can't. I, I just don't know. I wasn't in the room. I wasn't there. Yeah. I would have more of an. I think I would have more of an understanding if I was actually there and uh, working on the case myself. But no, it's just. Uh, it's 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 a very very fine line, and and uh, I, I I'm I'm just as baffled and uh, you know bemused as, as the next person. So I don't have a definitive answer. It's not a cop out answer, but I just don't have a definitive uh, no, answer. No. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it, it, it it's a hard one. It it really is because you you, you really think about the the fact that it what was she was she mentally ill or was she actually possessed or was it somewhere in between? And then yeah. did the priests were they feeding in possibly feeding into a mental illness yeah. that was already there? You yeah. really ultimately really don't know. It's, yeah, it's so difficult. It's so difficult, and this is why priests and exorcists and, and bishops in the diocese have, just have to be extremely careful. And uh, what what Father Martin was facing was was obviously after the, the release of films like The Exorcist and The Omen, etc. You know, you can imagine the confessional boxes were rammed the next day with you know people believing they were possessed or neighbors or or siblings or etc. were possessed, and uh, a lot of the church, a lot of the churches in the area just closed their doors in every case, and and yeah. and. You know, that's why Father Martin set up his underground movement of exorcists at the time. So it was, yeah, it's so difficult. It's so difficult. But I think with thorough investigation first, you know, you, you, you do try and you do see a light at the end of it all. But uh, no, I think I think it's such a difficult, difficult area. And difficult. this is why the church will always come in last in a sense. Yeah, true. Uh, let's. I want to talk about some of the people that you interviewed in the film that were friends yeah. of Father Martin. And yeah. let's also talk about one of his biggest critics. I believe the guy's last name yeah. was Kaiser, as the older older gentleman in the film. Uh, but let's talk about his friends, uh, some of the people that 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 uh, that, yeah. that he worked with. Uh, I think Ken Morrow, um, yeah. uh, Sarchi. Yeah. Is another one um, that that kind of became big. So there was a film about him <laughs> that came yeah, yeah. out a few years ago, which was a pretty decent little movie. Yeah, yeah, um, Deliver Some Evil. So Ralph, Ralph Sarchi, uh, Ralph like like all of of Malachi Martin's friends, were extremely protective of their mentor, stroke friend. You know, they Father Martin was extremely important in their lives and and, and answered a lot of questions for them at the time. So they were initially very, very protective. And uh, some friends who, you know, didn't make the film were, were for me a little bit overprotective. And, and that came across quite quickly that, hmm. you know, um, I, from day one, I was always saying, you know, this is going to try this is going to be as balanced as I can. This is going to be as, as objective. I can, I have to be as objective as I can because nobody wants to, to watch a film and, 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 and to be, you know, to be swung one way rather than sort of, uh, 
give them the sort of uh, critical voice in the film as well. So, so his friends at first they reached out. Some of them, some of them reached out to us because they, with the joy of the internet, everybody knows your business. So uh, they they found out we were making a film. So they reached out to us first, and uh, first of all, very protective, but also uh, very select in who who we thought we should speak to. So, so I just I just phoned everybody and emailed everybody, and over time we I started sort of triage the people who was going to interview because uh, because you know we, we're always playing against time when you're making films you, you, you're always battling against the lack of time to get things in the in the can as we say so the so the people left in the film were the likes of ralph sarchi um demonologist in new york ex ex uh, um, sergeant in, in the nypd done a lot of years um you know, gave his life to the service, and now he's given his life to to the world of demonology. And we've also got Robert Marrow, who has a has a very secretive past, which I won't spoil it for the audience who haven't watched mm-hmm, the film yet. Mm-hmm. Who who became he would always call himself Malachi's driver. You know, he at the end of the day he was best friends with Malachi, but he'd always class himself as his driver. He would take him to and from his exorcisms and also his other priestly duties at the time. And and then there was others like. Uh, Obviously, our bell. Although, although the two of them had never met, um, they, they yeah. spent hours and hours on the phone together talking about all sorts of things. So uh, they they became close as well. And, and I was lucky enough to to get our bell on camera, which was great. And uh, John Zavis, similar to mm-hmm. Ralph, you know, mm-hmm. became it was a big mentor, um, big mentor in, in, in John's life as well. And yeah, we've and had after, we've had John on this show. Mm-hmm. Oh, great, yep. brilliant. So after after Hostage the Devil came out the book, uh, John John felt that that was the the go to book. Uh, at the time in the seventies for for demonology etc. So, and we've got little snippets of uh, Lorraine Warren as well, and and uh, yeah. So this was a man who was who was looked up looked up to uh, with, with probably America's number one paranormal sort of um, arena at the time. So yeah. So I, I was I was to be honest, I was spoiled for choice of who I you know had on had on on camera. And at the end of the day. I, I, I don't want this to be a two, three hour epic, epic okay. sort of yeah. uh, documentary. And, you know, people's people, you know, already are investing their time in the film. So, and, and as you'll, as you'll find out by the end of it, we're only scratching the surface about the man, you know, and right. has left a lot of questions open, which right. is frustrating to many, but it's literally, um, it's, you know, we're only scratching the surface for obvious reasons. Well, I think that's good because it, it allows for people to go and research yeah. and some research yeah. do, their, do their research on it now this gentleman uh kaiser i don't remember his lo- his yes. first name but right, uh, robert, Blair, robert Blair kaiser yeah this is this is the person that is the i guess the critic of of the group uh i guess that he had had it, it seemed strange because he's had like he had a very real, real friendship with with martin they were yeah. friends uh and then there was some kind of something that happened with Kaiser's wife. <laughs> yeah. 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 And very, but he, very polite about it. <laughs> right, 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 right. But he was very, but he was, he was extremely critical of Martin said that he was a charlatan. You know, yeah. what was your impressions of him? How did you, oh, what did well, you think I mean, of him? Bob, Bob, Bob came in, came into the scene like a wrecking ball. Uh, as you'll see in the film, <laughs> he also comes in like a wrecking ball. And uh, years ago, I'd been speaking to Bob on the phone and uh, a lot of times and, and, he, in my naivety, he asked me the question. And I answered. This is the question he asked me. He said, uh, "So what do you, what do you, Marty? What he was trying to suss me out, basically. He was like, well, so what do you think about the man?' And this is very early on in my research, and, sure. and I was like, I, 
I tried to sort of bluff my way through and I said, oh, I, I, you know what, I'm, I'm going to remain on the fence about the man. And he sort of laughed down the phone and uh, he sort of, he was like, you know, you cannot make a film and, and, and remain on the fence about this man. You you either one side of the fence or the other. So, and he was totally right so over the over the years of further research. Uh, you, you, and also as a filmmaker and writer, you need to make that decision. You know, you are going to, you can remain as objective as you can, mm-hmm. you know, but you are going to sway some very subliminally sometimes and very in a very minor ways you are going to sway to to, to certain way either pro or anti the anti man so it was he was he was very very fascinating to speak to he he's obviously best friends with father martin during the the vatican days and became best friends he was uh, also a jesuit himself um, I believe from from the late forties onwards, and uh, then became a correspondent for Time Magazine and, and, and wrote a few great articles and on um, some books. And uh, I just felt the need to 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 have him on camera. And uh, it was it was sort of two weeks before the the main shoot, and he, he rang me up again and said, "Marty, you need to come quick. Uh, I'm dying. Hmm. I'm in a hospital. I'm in a hospice." And uh, you need to come quick. So obviously made sure that Bob was the first one on the list when we arrived in America, in Arizona. He was the first guy to get on camera. So and, and I went up to his, to his hospice with with our production man, uh, uh, with our producer, US producer, and uh, we, we we banged the interview out. And and you know he was, you could still tell it was a little glint in his eye when he was speaking to me. You could still you could still tell he respected the man. He respected Malachi. He. He respected. It was he wouldn't. He would never say it to your face, but he just. It was. He just knew that he. He still had fond feelings about the man, even though a lot of things he was saying was quite. You know, was, was extremely critical. You could just see in there that you know he. He was. You know. He. He, he still had that little bit of respect for him, and, and you would do. You know, spent so many so many years in the Vatican together, and and, and sure, and you know, spent a lot of time researching together and talking and and partying, etc. So. Yeah, so unfortunately, you know, three weeks after the interview, he passed away. But um, mm. I'm also getting a lot of a uh, lot of complaints about why I had Bob in the film at all. And just for me, he he provides that critical anchor. He he asks a lot of questions and answers a lot of questions, which a lot of the audience who doesn't know Maliki will, will have in the back of their minds as well. So, um, although although we have a lot more friends than foes in the film, he was still. Uh, important to have in the in the film as well, and and just show just a demonstration of how uh, controversial Malachi Martin was um, during his life and after his life when, yeah, he, when he passed away. So. Yeah, you got to have somebody that is um, yeah. someone that is. I, I don't know that I would say he's impartial because definitely not, yeah. but somebody that can kind of bring a little bit of a crit- critique to it. Um, <laughs> I, I felt kind of like, well, that he says that Malachi Martin slept with his wife. I felt like, okay, this guy may be a little bit biased. Uh, there might be a little bit of a of a problem here. But yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Malachi, Malachi Martin, you know, it's not, and I'm not talking about just female friends here. They would always say that he just he was just extremely charismatic. Yeah. In the way he would be at dinner parties, telling stories, the way he interacted with others, he he just he just oozed charisma, and he was extremely intelligent. and And I felt with Bob and Maliki, there was a lot of well, particularly just one way actually with with, with 
Bob's views of Malachi. I felt Bob was extremely jealous of one Malachi, the, the personality, and two Malachi, the writer. You know, mm-hmm. he was. You can imagine sort of you know Malachi being you know surrounded at dinner parties in the Vatican, and, and he's telling his stories in his Irish way and, and and lovable way, and telling cracking jokes, and sometimes you know the odd sort of dirty joke here and there, as as as, you know, as, as it happens. And I just felt like there was a lot of jealousy there in the back of Bob's uh, Bob's heart, basically. Yeah, you think there's like a Salieri Amadeus kind exactly. of thing going exactly. on there? Yeah. yeah. Uh, friendship yeah. but rivalry at the same time. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, Rob, do you have any questions you want to ask? Or this is Rob, by the way. I <laughs> oh, forgot to introduce <laughs> him earlier. Hey, Marty, nice to meet you. Hey, mate. Good to see you, mate. Um, as far as questions, no. Um, I've it's it's great first of all to talk to someone who's managed to dig so deep into this and separate you know a lot of the fact from fiction and yeah. I went um, all Rob just to get there though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but no, I just want to say I really appreciate that, and um, it's you know, it's a fascinating topic. He's he was a fascinating man. Right, he was a absolute joy to to make a film about. To be honest, oh yeah, I'm sure it's a hell of a subject. I want to talk about some things that are not in the film, okay. um, and some things that maybe I I guess for the because his writings and his things that he talks about were so vast and, and, and yeah. there were so many things and in really in the film, I, I think you really wanted to focus on the exorcism aspect, yes, exactly. Yeah. but there were some other, but there were some other aspects uh, that I want to talk about. And one of those, yeah. uh, well, two of them, but one of them, the first one I will talk about is Fatima yeah. and the third secret. Uh, Getting a lot of stick for not putting that in the film, but you know that, that's a documentary in itself. To be right, right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, the, you have that exorcism aspect of Malachi Martin, and yeah. then you have this more kind of conspiracy theory aspect of Malachi Martin, yeah. and the things that he talked about. Uh, Black mass in the Vatican, basically. Yeah, yeah. We'll get to that in a second, but <laughs> I want. But but the but the third but the third uh, secret of Fatima, and this is interesting stuff because we've talked a little bit about Fatima on this show uh before and in in some ways there's almost a ufo aspect to fatima the miracle of the sun uh we've talked about that um i also but what was his idea about the third secret of fatima um you have to ask him about that (laughs) (laughs) he um the he mentioned he used to talk about it to Robert Marrow, who was his driver. But uh, yeah. even he, even he, never told me anything about that. He, uh, apparently, our bell. He told a few things to our bell over the phone about the subject matter. And again, when I asked our bell the same question, you know, he he, he refused to tell me anything um, <laughs> about it. So this this is pretty locked down. But so I'm like you, I'm I'm. Yeah. my own research this, this is why i couldn't i couldn't make that a strand of the film was just i just didn't i just couldn't find anybody who was willing to tell me anything at all so unfortunately it's it's not the answer you wanted but uh no it's 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 it still fascinates me and it's still in the back of my mind you know it's and again that's that's a that's a spin-off that's a film in itself a documentary in itself as well well actually it generates another question why do you think they're so secretive about it <laughs> because Oh, it's like, uh, what are your thoughts? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I know the third secret of Fatima is supposed to be, and you have the first secret and the second, and the, the first secret I think has to do with some kind of event 
The second secret has to do with some kind of like something about Russia, uh, because yeah. all this took place in 1917 yeah. during World War One, right before the Russian Revolution. Uh, and then the third secret is supposedly the Pope, something happening to a, the Pope or a Pope, which they said was fulfilled. I, I think was fulfilled by Pope John Paul II being assassinated. But then Malachi Martin and others have said, no, that's not what it is. It's supposedly some other really horrible event that is supposed to happen in the future. And the Vatican and the popes are covering it up. That's as I understand it in a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, there's, there is a radio uh, broadcast. Malachi does talk about, I, mean, I mentioned before about his boss, Cardinal Bayer, you know, he was, he was outside the uh, the room at the time as they were. It was all sorts of um, arguing and shouting going on next door, and he was sort of sat outside with his with his little satchel, waiting for his boss to come out. and And uh, he'd always say he ne- he'd never seen his his boss Cardinal Bear look so yeah, angry. And, and and you know he he was just there was something going on in that room. And and he you know it's the fact that he you know he describes that you know the, the third secret of Fatman was written on on a sheet of paper, just one sheet of paper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was incredible. And uh, it obviously um, had to be had to be translated. You know, it was written in Portuguese, etc. Right. Um, for all those in the room and, and, and Maliki was in the room as it was being translated. So that's how he was involved and, and obviously kept that kept that with him and, and uh, unfortunately uh Art Bell Art Bell was a was a closed door and, and some of his friends were, were were sort of locked in in what they would what they would disclose to me as well so it was a shame really but uh, yeah. yeah it's uh it's one of those yeah again just like Maliki you know, wrapped in mystery you know, even, even now did you find yourself frustrated by that a little bit or yeah because that, that could have been a massive imp- oh, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure. selfish selfishly I just thought that could have been a, a, a extremely interesting section of the film and also you know it's similar to the David Berkowitz encounter in the jail that could have been such a great, a great section oh, of the yeah. film, but yeah. no, it's just, it's just, just first of all, no, I just couldn't get the evidence or, or, or the proof, and uh, now that yeah, it's extremely frustrated as, as as a as a storyteller as well. I just thought this this could have been a, an exceptional part of the film, but I just yeah, you know, I just I just couldn't I couldn't justify putting on screen to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know what you mean by the frustration. Sometimes people will tell you they will tell you these tantalizing little things. And then you're like, but what can you tell me more? You know, you know, so it's like, it's like, it, 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 it is, it, it that's, that's kind of how it is. And sometimes with the, I guess the conspiracy, uh, yeah. community, and especially when yeah. it, then it becomes wrapped in religion, you can, yeah. you know, you can, you can run into a brick wall at a certain yeah. time. They just give you enough to just make you really interested. And I guess on, that's, on- oh, go ahead. On, on, on Maliki's death, uh, he, he was actually writing his most controversial novel to date, which was, uh, I believe, his 16th novel. I could be wrong, but um, his his last book, it was about the, the Catholic faith and, and, and the New World Order. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, he, and he, Maliki would always write in, in, in long form and ha- handwrite his notes on the old printer paper, which you see in the film. He, he just handwrites his novels, his books and his articles and somebody else will, will have to type out for him. He, that's the way he, that's, that was his, you know, that was his method of writing. And, and, and there was, I believe there was manuscripts of hundreds of pages of this new novel, which according to his friends who, who, who he talked to about it was going to be his most controversial to date. And, and for all those sort of conspiracy theorists out there, you know, this is going to be great for them. But literally on his death, his whole apartment was stripped out 
it was cordoned off and stripped out and there was no trace of this manuscript ever found and and that you know again that that um is an interesting area of his life as well yeah who stripped out the apartment well there's a few there. So he was living with the, the Livanos family, Kaki Livanos, who was his land, landlady, who owned the building. And uh, I believe that, according to his literary agent, he, he, she just got rid of all his stuff, uh, sent it off to you know, down the road to the charity shop. And, and uh, that's one theory. But also another theory is that, you know, people came in and stripped it out and, and uh, yeah, took, took all the good stuff out and left all the, uh, left the apartments empty. So, uh, it, it, again, even even on his death, he, he's still stranded in mystery, and, and he's an enigma to this day. Yeah, it was it was the Jesuits had to have been <laughs> had to have been. Had we, to have been. We, we, we were told six years ago, or well, well, the producers were told six years ago in Dublin that by the Jesuits that we wouldn't be allowed to make this film. So uh, we were like, okay, <laughs> oh, the plot thickens. Well, that thickens, that yeah. that will bring us to the Black Mass in the Vatican. Oh, lovely. So that's, that's one of the, that's one of the big things. Like I remember, I mean, I remember Art Bell being on the radio and I can remember one, I maybe hearing this, maybe hearing Malachi Martin a couple of times yeah. in the late, like mid to late nineties. And that was the big thing was the black mass in the Vatican. And supposedly, yeah. uh, I don't know when, the, when was that supposed to have taken place? The sixties? Yeah. The sixties is actually, um, during the second Vatican council, well, the height of the second Vatican council in Rome, I believe. Right, right. And there was this, uh, somehow there was a coordination by telephone with another black mass in Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah, of all places. So the free, (laughs) yeah. Well, so, but yeah, so the Freemasons were involved because that's supposedly where, well, that's where Albert Pike started the Freemasonry, or or Scottish Rite Freemasonry, rather. And uh, so, yeah, very interesting. There's like three conspiracy theories. I think they're in one. So yes. what are your thoughts on that? Um, my thoughts are quite strong, hence why I'm hopefully going to be um, working with two other producers on um, getting Windswept House. Uh, well, yeah, we're trying okay. to get Windswept House made into um, into some sort of, uh, I don't know what it is yet. <laughs> Which is one of his novels, right? Last I think. Oh, is sorry. That, yeah, Wins- yeah. Windswept House is one of his novels. Yes. We, is, he talks about this. Okay, yeah, he, okay. he always wrote in a factional sense. So based on fact. And yeah. his friends would always, his friends would always ask him, why, why do you always write in this, you know, factional sense and he, in a factional way? And he always say, well, well, well I want to keep my kneecaps. And that was his answer. So, uh, yeah, he was very careful as well. And, and <laughs> he, he wrote about and changed the names over obvious, for obvious reasons. But, uh, I, I, I do, if you are interested in Malachi Martin, and I, w- I would definitely recommend the, the top three of his books yeah. being, you know, Winsworth House, you know, being in, being in that top three, definitely. Yeah, I was reading about that the other day. I, yeah, you could really do that up. I mean, that could be like your eyes yeah. wide shut. Exactly. Yeah, it's, yeah. there's all sorts of threats and all sorts of layers um, going on. So, and obviously, Pope uh, Paul VI is, you know, his famous statements is, you know, the smoke of Satan has entered the sanctuary. So it's 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 very uh, dramatic, but yeah, uh, yeah very chilling chilling times if, if it was true yeah i mean you really can't honestly you really can't discount it can you no no in in, in many ways i mean knowing some of the things that you know well, what we've talked about on this show and i'm sure that you've heard you really can't discount it no no about exorcisms how have your 
viewpoints on that changed? Have they changed in in first studying this man, studying exorcisms, and then making this film? I, I think I've become. This might sound strange, but I think I've become more skeptical hmm. with, with the whole with the whole thing and very what what I see, what I listen to. And what I'm told, I'm, I'm very much more skeptical about the whole thing, and uh, not in a negative way. It's just that you know I, I've been speaking to these exorcists in Rome, for example, who are very, very careful about uh, about approaching cases, and and they have to be, you know, they have to be careful themselves, but from, from legal reasons as well. So, um, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm skeptical. I, I do, I do believe in extremely, extremely rare cases, which science just cannot explain. I do, I do believe that there is something, you know, not of this world. Um, involved you know and that that's and hopefully that doesn't come across too much in the film uh being a subjective you know as, as objective as i can be right but sometimes you know sometimes your beliefs do 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 filter out now and again however yeah let's yeah i, I generally I, I believe i've become more skeptical uh in, in the whole subject matter has it str- in any way well you have become more skeptical but in at the same time do you feel that it may have strengthened your faith in some ways Oh yeah, it's 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 been a five year passion project for me, but it's also been an educational journey, but also a a journey of my own faith as well. And and yeah, it, it has slowly you know fortified what I believe in, and and as has been a spiritual journey as well. Not to sound too cheesy, but it, it, it had to be really you know looking yeah. at what I was researching at the time and and what I I'm, I'm still getting I'm still getting people contacting me out the you know out the woodwork you know, and I feel like a. a you know, this is. I feel like I'm not overwhelmed yet, but this is what Maliki Martin was facing. Was, <laughs> you know, he, he would he would give out his his telephone number and his postal address on on live radio, and and then next minute you can imagine his his voicemail yeah. was just was just rammed with people you know wanting needing his help. And but I do there's there's this from my point of view, it, it's extremely commercial. People are interested about it out there, and. And I know Netflix are, are still interested in the subject matter. So yeah, but, uh, who knows? We, we we will we will definitely see more uh, more more content around this sub- subject matter and also around the man. So, but uh, yeah, just for me, yeah, it's it's made me skeptical in a good way because yeah. obviously I, I trolled through hours and hours of real recordings of exorcism, tro- uh, you know, listened to hours and hours of audio tapes and and. It, Sometimes it's 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 quite difficult not to be dragged into in, into believing everything you hear and everything you see. So uh, I think you just got to question everything that you hear and see in front of you. And, and but um, I have never had that experience in the room, though. I've, ne- I've never been to one where mm-hmm. you felt that experience, which which you can't really see and can't really hear. It's just that you know, presence in the room. I've, I've never felt that, and I'm sure if if I did, then I I would be even more. Uh, you know, more of a believer in a sense, but uh, no, it's, it's, it's been an incredible journey. Well, Malachi Martin, I guess that he stated that exorcisms are increasing. Um, is that yes. something that you, that you have seen through your own research? Yeah, I think for the, the Rome chapter was important because I, I heard about this course, which the, which is run out of the university of Regina. And I literally, I just had to speak to the head, the head lecturer, who was also a, a priest, a Catholic priest exorcist, who was he was the right hand man to Gabriel Amorph. So, yeah, I needed to speak to him about you know obviously you're you're, you're training hundreds of, of priests to become exorcists each year and you know where are they all going and and his answer is was very frank. You know, is he could specifically tell me where they were all going to and and there was um 
it was always areas where it was high concentrations of religion and faith. It was always the complete opposite. You know, for example, Turin, you know, in Italy, you know, I never thought this, but Turin is, is, is a, is a hotspot mm. of, 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 of activity and, and, uh, slightly overwhelmed in that area at the moment. And obviously you've got the Turin shroud, et cetera, et cetera. So there's always that yeah. complete opposite of what in the battle in a sense. And you've got South America, you know, a lot of cartels who are worshiping Satan, et cetera, and drinking blood and doing all the occult rituals who, you know, believe that, you know, by, by drinking this blood and believing, you know, believing in Satan, they, they would be, you know, yeah. they, they would be able to sort of, dodge bullets and you know not be imprisoned and and obviously you've got like you know africa areas of africa as well with voodoo etc so no it's it, they're extremely busy but what i found fascinating with the course is they actually invite uh, a lot of science practitioners as well uh and they, so they get a nice mix of science and, uh, and and priests in the room so and obviously i was fortunate to interview matt baglio who wrote the right the making of a modern exorcist he was allowed he was probably the first western journalist allowed into these exorcisms in rome Right, and yeah. he was standing in the back of the room. So he, 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 he was he was like me as well. He, 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 went, he was actually in the room, which which is not why I've done. But he was he was even more skeptical as well. He was even more of a skeptic. So uh, he he was he was great to to, to interview as well. And obviously, uh, the rights became a film with Anthony Hopkins, and, and, and you know became quite famous. So uh, and he wrote, obviously wrote Argo as well. So which I'm a big fan of that film. So yeah, yeah. He, he was great to speak. To. Yeah, the right was a pretty decent film. I mean, I think it yeah. had nothing to really to do with the book, but no, no. <laughs> <laughs> they, they usually don't, do they? Uh, so, I'll ask Ralph about that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, well, Marty, we're almost out of time here, but uh, right. I want before I let you go, I want to talk about a little bit of your other projects, other things that you've yeah. been working on. Uh, what are some of those, and uh, what are you working on next? So. I class myself more as a storyteller than anything. You know, storytelling can be in many genres and many, in many, you know, many areas. So I, I'm not just a documentary filmmaker. I also have passion, passions in, in, in feature film narrative work as well. So at the moment, I'm, I'm heavily involved in two projects. Uh, one being a narrative, a narrative horror film. And um, cause I'll be honest with you. You know, give me give me feature films every time because that script's already written. The script's been through the ringer, mm-hmm. and it's been you know it's been developed and it's been you know it's 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 there. It's it's eighty plus pages, and it's uh, there's a there's a start, middle, and end. I hope, uh, but with documentary, it, it's just an, an ongoing. Mm, it, 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 it consistently molds and, and, and moves into into areas sometimes you're not expecting. So with documentary, it's more of an organic process of writing, and uh, and uh, hence why it took me so long to to finish it and to, and to make it. And but with feature film, it, it's like I said before, it's very you know the script's already written, it's there, you know, etc. So that, it's that's laid out for you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but also. I'm working on a, a subject, a feature documentary uh, about invisible wounds of war and special forces, and it's an area which is very close to close to my heart. Being a, an ex an ex sufferer myself, you know, I'm, an, I'm a former Royal Marine Commando, and my grandfather was in the Special Air Service during World War Two, and he was an undiagnosed sufferer of PTSD. and And uh, that that for me is, is is another passion project which I'm working on at the moment with some UK Special Forces uh, wow. guys guys at the moment. So it, it, it's a it's going to be extremely in depth, emotional, personal private journey which i'm going to be going on at the same time as as, as the the special forces operators so it that that is that's another passion project which i'm heavily involved in at the moment so uh yeah again i just don't like to pigeonhole myself into into, into one area so i like to 
tell as many stories as I can in, in different sort of formats. Now, I did see one, I guess, that you, uh, that I guess is you're being worked on or has come out shaping the past. That oh, looked, sh- yeah, sh- yeah, that looked very interesting. Yeah, shaping the past. Unfortunately, uh, wasn't given a tran- a broadcast, uh, but it was a it was a project about a woman who who had suffered from uh, sexual abuse when she was an athlete, and uh, she was uh, she's a, she was a famous she became a famous uh, sports correspondent for for Sky and, and now independently. So it was a story about it was a story about her her life her her. her sort of uh, her case about against her uh, coach. Um, but by turning it into a positive, she decided to run around the UK to different soccer soccer stadiums um, over, over seven days. So it was, uh, no, I was very, um, very, very sort of involved in that one as well. And there's also a short film online, which I released online about two years ago, which is free to watch. It's called To Lose Control. It's on Vimeo. Yeah. And that's that that's short film about uh, basically about uh, about my own life and my and my journey of, of how I how I got to the end of of, uh, of recovery. Um so that that's that that's that's a film called To Lose Control, which you can watch online for free. So uh, that's that's about my life and, and my journey in a sense. Man, that's something that I would love to talk to you about sometime. Yeah. I mean that that is that is uh yeah. I I I I've met a lot of people that have had the same same issues and uh, it's, yeah, very it's, it's a very, it's a very pri- yeah, it's a very private illness if if you know what I mean. So yeah. a lot of my family and friends had no no idea that I that I was suffering, and it's a very private. So I kept it all inside. It's it, it's 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 not sometimes what you see in the films where you know we're not all you know wife wife beaters or you know. Sure. Fight, fighting in bars, and so it's for me. It was a very private illness where I just contained it myself, and and uh, it, there was there was, for example, the the one incident where which really made me go out and stop being selfish and get some help was you know hugging hugging. She was my daughter was four at the time, but you know, hugging hugging her in the kitchen and feeling absolute nothing. You know, mm. numbness, total numbness to to my daughter, who I know I, I worshipped and adored since the day she was born, and, and having that numbness, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't put on any, any, even even my greatest enemies, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put that on. It was just a horrible, horrible feeling, which made me, you know, get up and get out there and and get the help that I needed. So, yeah, uh, yeah so having that realization, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, that eureka moment. And you've also gotten the opportunity to film in the Middle East, which I found interesting. I think you did. Yeah. Uh, it's like you did a, a little short film, uh, a little short documentary about the about Egypt right after yeah, the during, uh, revolution. Yeah. So during the Arab Spring, I was I was called in. They they were trying to find somebody who was mad enough to go in at the time, and and, and my number was <laughs> my number was on the list. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Being ex military, and you know. It, it, it was normal. It was quite normal to me to be sent into these places. So I, during the tail end of the revolution, the Arab Spring, I was I was brought in to do a documentary about um, about you know what happens next in a sense, and and then from there I went on to do a lot of work in Africa, particularly Sudan, and um, I went into from there into Palestine, which is extreme, very very interesting place. And so yeah, they tend to they, they tend to send me to uh, areas which are you know. <laughs> No one's crazy enough to go into, so it was uh, that. That for me was a was a was a, a nice time to transition from military to civilian life. That was a nice time and a nice opportunity to actually, although I'm not carrying a weapon, I still had that buzz, um, which we talk yeah. about in my next documentary, No Smoke in the Sky. We we talk about that 
we basically treat it like an addiction in a sense in, in this mm-hmm. new film we, we talk about that um euphoric sense and that euphoric um feeling which you which you get in combat which uh which when when it isn't in your life anymore leaves a massive void and and it breaks you down as a person um, so we're, we're treating the film like it's an addiction film which is which has never been seen before which uh which which hopefully um i'll get out and get on your screens very soon so very interesting wow that that's uh, that sounds very interesting very fascinating uh, very, very interesting to be in palestine too i mean that just sounds yeah. like a really crazy place to be and, and I guess you really see how things, when you're there, you see how things really are. Yeah, it's, I see, it's, I, the, the biggest thing I see is resilience. The, just the, it's, it's so hard when you're in, when you're on one side of the fence, when you're in Israel, you, you, you get a sense of, it's, it's such a delicate beast as well. It's, it's yeah. when you're in Palestine, for example, you speak to, you speak to people and it's, it's their side of the story. And then when you go across to the military checkpoint, you speak to the Israelis, it's their side of the story. And it's like, Oh my word, it's so mixed up. And <laughs> it's been yeah. similar, similar to Northern Ireland and, you know, in the 60s, right. 70s, you know, you know, right. and, uh, but you know, Belfast at the moment is, is, it's an ex- extremely affluent place at the moment and it's doing so well. And, and, uh, you know, obviously Game of Thrones is filmed here and you know, it's just, uh, yeah. it's, doing, it's doing so well for itself. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're big game of thrones fans oh great <laughs> but, but unfortunately you know even nowadays we have a small pockets of violence sure a lot of communities want to go back to the old days and, and unfortunately that that's so that's that's the news that always makes it worldwide and you know i i still get messages from my parents saying is everything okay and i'm like yes it's no point 0.3 percent of the pop 0.05 percent of the population want to go back to violence you know don't listen don't, don't listen to what you're seeing on the news the news just like to sex things up in a sense so it's um yeah so it's a, i love this place belfast has been great and great for me and uh both you know raising my family here and also professionally as well it's been a great great place to develop my career as well so yeah, you don't feel like there's any sense of danger there anymore. Oh no, um, no, no. So it's still. Oh well, if you, if you go looking for it, you're gonna you'll find it. In oh sense, sure, so. yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> like any place. Yeah. Uh, what are some of your influences as far as um, both feature filmmaking and documentary filmmaking? Like what uh, what people influenced you? I with feature film, I'm a massive fan of Danny Boyle. So okay. train, yeah. train, train mm-hmm. spotting, um, sunshine, all, all those types of films. Um, with documentary, I was totally um, blown away by Sebastian Younger's um, work, his slate of uh, his slate of work, particularly Restrepo when that came out. I just okay. loved loved the bonus of that. And um, Alex Gibney, you know, he's he's great. Um, so yeah, I mean. So it's hard, it's hard to sort of uh, specify, but uh, what about, what about Herzog? Yeah, he's okay. Yeah. He's okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's okay. Uh, he's uh, sometimes it's uh, it's quite difficult to get through some of his some of his work, but uh, that's that's not that's no disrespect to him. But uh, yeah. no, it's uh, it's it's uh, it's all uh, similar to Sebastian Younger's work. It's it's raw and it's 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 real and it's on screen and it's there's the audience have got a great bullshit radar. You know they they, they know when things are things are being faked and and, and sexed up on screen. So uh, as a documentary maker, you just got to keep things as real as you can and just 
have have little sprinkles of sensationalism, but you know, obviously, at the end of the day, you, as long as you you know what you're talking about and the question, you know what the underlying question is, and the same for hostage. The the underlying question throughout the film is, you know, did this man tell the truth or was an absolute fantasist? You know, that's, yep. that's the main question. Yep. And I think you do a good job of exploring it. And where can people see the film? Um, hostage Devils out on uh, Netflix, I believe. Well, yep. it's, on, it's on for three more years, so um, you've got time to watch it. And it's still on iTunes, so you can watch it on iTunes. And I think it may still be on Amazon Prime, I'm not sure. but uh, yeah. So uh, there may one be Netflix, but I believe also iTunes and Amazon still have it as well. Excellent. Well, Marty, thank you so much for coming on the show. No uh, stay on the line for us. We're going to close this yep. out. And uh, yep. guys, we will be back on Conspiracy Normal. Tarot is the art of using cards to peek into the mysteries of the world around us. Have you ever wanted to try tarot to learn more about relationships, work, or finances? Maybe you don't know where to start or feel self-conscious going into one of those parlors. Try Ask Shuffle Cut, a great way to try tarot over email. Check us out at askshufflecut.wix.com slash tarot. That's askshufflecut.wix.com slash tarot. All right, everybody. Welcome back to Conspiracy Normal. Um, fascinating interview. I, I tried to watch the movie this morning. I'm going to have to watch it tonight now after the fact. <laughs> Just, um, I, I didn't know much about this guy. I've you know, heard about him in previous episodes. and Yeah. Um, I don't know. Just I feel like we barely scratched the surface with... with uh, Marty tonight, and I feel like the documentary, according to you guys, barely scratches the surface of the subject itself. So, sure, I'm intrigued. I'm very, very intrigued. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that you will. I think that you will like it. I mean, if you're definitely into kind of like spooky stuff <clears throat> like that, you will. You will enjoy it. Um, and it has a very, I, I, I think, just a very good feel to it as well. I think he does some really cool little techniques. Because not only is what like he was saying that he's a fe- a feature filmmaker as well, so he brings that kind of together a little bit. There right. are a little bit of dramatizations, but not so much as like reenactments. If you get what I mean, like he, it, it more like sets the sets the feel, sets the stage, the so, pacing and the editing yeah. of it and stuff. Yeah, I was just curious about like when in the, in the interview, just from that, not knowing very much about maybe Malachi Martin himself what you kind of got out of that, what you, how you, well, how, I mean, like, well, I guess the whole like idea of exorcism in the first place, what do you think about that? Um, I'm kind of on the fence about it. I mean, I don't, I I don't believe real strongly in, in demonic possession to begin with. And I'm, you know, I don't believe that there's a huge war between good and evil. I think that people are just all kinds of shades of gray and we all have a little bit of that in all of us. And to sure. me, demonic possession is more a, a metaphoric thing, you know, like letting the, um, letting your instincts or letting addictions or letting certain things take control over your, um, moral compass. Yeah. So I don't, you know, I don't think that it takes a a priest to go in and, and correct something like that. But there could be, there could be though, even if it was just that, even if it was just where you are completely overwhelmed or maybe your psyche is completely overwhelmed by whatever it is that 
whether it's an external force or whether it could be like what you're saying, an internal force. There could be something therapeutic about going through a ritual that basically cleanses you. Oh, for sure. And, you know, I think the more the person, the the possessed individual believes in it, I think the more powerful it's right. going to be. Right. And, 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 you know, episode 150, when we had Red Pill and Josh and Soraya on the show, mm-hmm. we talked about this film because they had, they had sat down and they had watched it. And we talked about some of like the power of belief, whether you can become so wrapped up in what your belief system is that you see nothing else outside of that and that you don't in that you don't think of any other of any other factors, even though sometimes you say that you do. Um, I do like how Marty kind of typified it as from his research that he talked about how exorcism was much more of a mundane thing than is usually been portrayed, especially by Hollywood, right? Right. Because like our first, well, really our first kind of portrayal of an exorcism is obviously The Exorcist. And then everything kind of builds off of that to movies like The Conjuring, uh, The Last Exorcism, which if you've ever, if you've not seen is an excellent movie. Uh, these, these kind of the right, these kind of movies that are out there. So people get in their, in their head that this is how an exorcism is supposed to be. Like it's supposed to be such an extreme sort of thing, but it really, it really isn't in a way. It's more of a, I guess in a way of, of, of cleansing someone's soul, I suppose. And I asked about the Annalise Michelle case because even though that is, it, it, in many ways, it's a horrifying case in and of itself. Of here's this girl that apparently had this bright future, but apparently she did have. Some people think she had mental problems. Some people think she was possessed, but she just basically wasted away and was like basically like a living skeleton towards the end of her life. And if you listen to those tapes, have you ever heard any of those tapes? No. Like you can find stuff like that about it on YouTube. It's utterly horrifying. I mean, she's screeching. Uh, I've heard some people say that, that she spoke in other languages, but Marty said that it was all just in German. So I don't know. I don't know if there was, if there really was anything to it. That's uh, the exorcism of Emily Rose was based off that case. If you've ever seen. Okay. Yeah. I've seen that. Yeah. I mean, basically what happened in that case is what is what happens in that movie, except they took it from Germany to like middle America somewhere. Right. You know, uh, that's a that's a good movie, too, in and of itself, because, you know, it's more of a courtroom drama than anything. And so it does kind of it does kind of uh, feed on this idea that, well, was she or wasn't she? Or was this what was it a actual demon or was she just messed up and the faith fed into it um what were your thoughts on kind of like Mal- what you heard about malachi martin i mean what do you think about from just the little that you heard do you think that he was on to something do you think that he was a charlatan do you think that he was um well i don't know it sounds like he took a lot of risks yeah to um to kind of get his his beliefs and opinions out there, which, I mean, I don't see why else he would have done that unless he really believed it. Right. Um, you know, 
as far as like the um what the Vatican stuff, the, uh-huh. the, the satanic stuff going on and, and yeah. all that. Um having really no knowledge of him before this, it's hard to really have much of an opinion on him. Sure. And that's I think that's what fascinated me most about it though. Now I just want to learn more about him and his history. Yeah, my main um, exposure to him was just from hearing maybe like an Art Bell interview or something. And a lot of that stuff you can find on YouTube now. Mm. So you can go back and listen to this stuff from like the mid to late 90s. I do want to talk a little bit, uh, delve a little bit into a little deeper into some of his ideas. Um, This is from a website that I think is probably a little bit more biased on the Catholic side, but uh, we will, we'll go ahead and read some of it anyway. Um, what talking about some of like the third secret of Fatima and this whole idea of the uh, black mass in the Vatican, what this was. I mean, this, you got to admit, this is really like juicy stuff. Okay? Oh yeah, for I sure. Mean, this is like, you, you can sink your teeth into this. Um, this is from these last days news. Okay. Uh, <laughs> concurrent satanic rites reportedly took place in the U.S. and St. Paul's Chapel in the Vatican on June 29th, 1963, barely a week after the election of Paul VI. Father Malachi Martin affirmed Satanism has been practiced in the Vatican. Father, Father Malachi Martin's accusations. In the Fatima Crusader article, Malachi Martin, a scholar, Vatican insider, and best-selling author, said anybody who is acquainted with the state of affairs in the Vatican in the last 35 years is well aware that the Prince of Darkness has had and still has his surrogates in the court of St. Peter in Rome. From 1958 until 1964... Jesuit priest Malachi Martin served in Rome, where he was a close associate of and carried out many sensitive missions for the renowned Jesuit Cardinal Augustin Bay and the Pope. Released afterwards from his vows of poverty and obedience at his own request, but still a priest, he ultimately moved to New York and became a best-selling writer of fiction and nonfiction. Uh, one of the things in the movie and the documentary he talks about is, yeah, he was released from his vows of poverty so he could make a living and his obedience, uh, which was actually his obedience to the Jesuit order, but he was not released from his vow, vows of chastity, chastity, which if he slept with the other dude's wife, then he kind of broke that vow. But anyway, right. Uh, Martin first made reference to a diabolic rite, diabolic rite, held in Rome in his 1990 nonfiction bestseller about geopolitics and the Vatican, the keys of this blood in which he wrote, most frighteningly for Pope John Paul II, he had come up against the irremovable presence of a malign strength in his own Vatican and certain bishops' chanceries. It was what knowledgeable churchmen called the superforce. Rumors always difficult to verify tied its installation to the beginning of Pope Paul VI's reign in 1963. Indeed, Paul had alluded somberly to the smoke of Satan which has entered the sanctuary an oblique reference to an enthronement ceremony by Satanists in the Vatican. Besides, the incidence of satanic pedophilia, rites, and practices was already documented among certain bishops and priests, as widely dispersed as Turin in Italy and South Carolina in the United States. The cultic acts of satanic pedophilia are considered by professionals to be the culmination of the fallen archangel's rites, which, by the way, 
specifically South Charleston, South Carolina, which is where, as I mentioned before, Scottish Rite was founded by uh with the guy uh, on the phallic throne, <laughs> our friend on the phallic throne, whose name just escaped me by the way, Albert Pike. And uh incidentally, Charleston falls on the thirty third degree of latitude. Mm-hmm. Ah. These allegations have largely gone unnoticed, possibly because he was so crafty in his descriptions that he might even have been referring to the coronation of Pope Paul VI. But he revealed much more about this alleged ritual in one of his last books, Windswept House, a Vatican novel, which Marty talked about. He wants to adapt into a film. In this story, he vividly described a ceremony called the Enthronement of the Fallen Archangel Lucifer, 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 Lucifer. supposedly held in St. Paul's Chapel in the Vatican, but linked with concurrent satanic rites here in the U.S. on June 29th, 1963, barely a week after the election of Paul VI. In the novel, Before He Dies, a pope leaves a secret account of the situation on his desk for the next occupant of the throne of Peter, a thinly disguised John Paul II. According to the New American, Martin confirmed that the ceremony did indeed occur as he had described. Oh, yes, it is true. Very much so, the magazine reported. He said, the only way I could put that down into print is in novelistic form. Martin's accusation of a satanic ritual at the Vatican was also confirmed by John Loeffler, head of the Still on Still radio show. Mr. Loeffler personally asked Father Malachi Martin, who had been a regular guest on his show, about the reported dedication to Satan within the Vatican. You know, Malachi confirmed the first part of his book, Windswept House, has confirmed the dedication to the Vatican to Satan in a secret ceremony that occurred unknown even to the Pope at that time, and he managed to pick up. And I did ask him, was this true? Did it happen? And he, Father Martin, said, yes, it did. Father Malachi Martin also said members of the clergy are becoming aware of the situation. An archbishop several years ago has accused high members of the hierarchy in Rome of practicing Satanism. The Italian newspaper Il Tempo and other major daily papers reported this stunning news. Okay. So that's uh, basically the whole idea of the black mass. Apparently there was this idea that uh, they had this black mass in the Vatican and they had another black mass in Charleston, South Carolina, where somebody did, where they, where they phoned it in so they could listen to each other. I don't know exactly what that means, but that this is interesting. And this is a conspiracy that we haven't really gotten into on the show. Uh, The murder of Pope John Paul, the first you're seeing Godfather part three. It's been a long time. Okay. The Blessed Virgin Mary's apparition in Bayside, New York, stating that Satan has entered into the highest realms of the hierarchy in Rome, would also explain some very dark secrets surrounding the death of Pope John Paul I, who mysteriously died of a heart attack, in quotation marks, slightly over a month after election. Regarding the alleged heart attack, his niece affirmed, It's in my family, almost no one believes it was a heart attack that killed my uncle. He never had heart trouble or any illness of that kind and Pope John Paul I's brother. John Paul's brother, Eduardo, in Australia on a trade mission, reported that the Pope had been given a clean bill of health after a medical examination three weeks ago. He was frail in health as an infant and as a young priest, but there were no reports of of heart trouble. From Time Magazine, in an early age, so untimely a death may have stirred deep suspicions. If this were the time of the Borgias, said a young teacher in Rome, there would be talk that John Paul was poisoned. But the Vatican replied that such allegations were irresponsible. 
The fact is, Our Lady's message at uh, let's see. But by the way, you know how long Pope John Paul's the first? How many days his reign as Pope was? Sixty-three. No. Two hundred. Thirty-three. Oh. Three. There it is again. Please note that a 1975 ruling from the Vatican ordered that no autopsy could be performed on a pope. How convenient. What does the Vatican have to fear from an autopsy? Not just Our Lady's message points to foul play. There is a best-selling book by David Yallop that also alleges that Pope John Paul I was murdered in God's name in investigation into the murder of Pope John Paul I. Okay, so the reason I brought up Godfather Part 3 is that's basically part of the plot of Godfather Part 3 about Pope John Paul I being uh, murdered, poisoned in his bed. Uh, the theory is is that, I don't know what it's got to do with the dark satanic mass, but it probably has to do with the fact that Pope John Paul I was going to actively look into the actions of the Vatican Bank, which were not too good, shall we say. Ah. Uh, There was a lot of people skimming off and making a lot of money off the Vatican Bank. And there was also an involvement by this Masonic group in Italy called Propaganda Duo, which is also called P2. And it was um, apparently involved with the Vatican Bank. And under Paul VI, these guys had had free reign to do whatever they wanted. Paul VI dies. They bring in this new pope, Pope John Paul I, who in some ways is kind of like Pope Francis now. You know, wanted to really come in and change things, going to look into the corruption uh, that was in the Vatican. And then 33 days later, he's found dead of a heart attack. And of course, there's no, um, there's no autopsy available for him because you cannot. So they guess, just, they just guessed that it was a heart attack. Well, that, yeah, I, I suppose. I mean, I don't know That's how what else they you... told the world <laughs> that he well, had a heart attack in his sleep. <clears throat> How can you confirm that though without an autopsy? Right, exactly. That's why it's that's why it's very strange. I mean, granted, he was an older man, but a lot of people in the family, his own family, thought it was strange that he would have died as died of a quote unquote heart attack. Yeah, and that kind of timing is just bizarre too. And you know, I, I watch a lot of those. Um, well, Alyssa watches a lot of those yeah. crime documentary shows, and it's always you know it's always either a crime of passion or a money thing. And if he was, you know, rocking the boat and getting in the way of a lot of people making a lot of money, I could I could easily see that being a good motive. Right. And a couple of years later, this happened in 1978. So I think about two, three years later, uh, there was a guy named Roberto Calvi, who was a member of the P- of P2 and also an, an official in the Vatican Bank. And he was about to go public with some of his stuff. And they found him hanging off a bridge in the middle of London, like literally hanging there. And so Godfather Part 3 kind of plays on all this whole conspiracy because in the movie, 
Michael Corleone is fun, is, is is trying to finally go legit, right? After 20 years of being this mafia guy. And he's trying to bring the family business into legitimacy and selling off the Corleone crime family holdings and trying to invest it in some kind of like trading company that is owned by the Vatican Bank. Well, he ends up just getting involved with even deeper criminals that have been <laughs> right. for 500 years, right? And uh, it, it, that are involved with the Vatican Bank. And he gets, and eventually, uh, as a way to get back at him, the Pope, that they kill the Pope in the movie. Because uh, the Pope is this guy that he, uh, the cardinal that he confesses his sins to at one point in the film. And uh, there is actually a scene where they kill Corleone's guys, kill a banker and hang and hang him off a bridge. Okay. So that's the Roberto Calvi character. However, in real life that happened about three years after that's a, that's a whole like can of worms, like the, the P2. I mean, you talking, those guys are like classic mafia, Freemasonic ideas, uh, probably roots in like, uh, like the old, old criminal history in Italy. Okay. That, that stuff goes and runs deep there. Um, and that was a huge thing in like the early eighties because people really speculated that that's, that that's what happened. And, you know, Pope John Paul II was elected. And then three years later, I mean, about a year after he was elected, he was he was shot by this Turkish guy, and some people think that there's something that 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 has to do with that, and so that's where like the third secret of uh, Fatima comes in, right? Is that they say that the third secret is is that he would that a pope would be killed or assaulted. Um, this is from. I'll read, go over this, and we'll we'll go go over to some other things. But this is from the Book of Knowledge in Wikipedia. Uh, this is what let's get what the three secrets are. The first secret, because this is the the three children that saw the lady in Fatima in Portugal, right in nineteen seventeen. Uh, there's a there's we talk about this in a Patreon only. So you got to be a patron, a little plug there to hear this with Joshua Cutchin. Those are all posted on our Patreon page, but you got to pay $4 a month to hear it. Hint, hint. Uh, but, and then there was the other things about the, uh, the miracle of the sun that I mentioned, which a lot of people believe is a UFO event. There are some people out there who believe that that is what that is, what that was. Uh, guys like Jacques Vallée talk about that. Uh, but the first secret that the lady said to the three children and the one that survived that lived to adulthood into old age was Lucia. Uh, the first secret was a vision of hell. Okay. Uh, the second secret was a statement that World War I would end along with a prediction of another war during the reign of Pope Pius XI. Should men continue offending God and should Russia not convert? The second half requests that Russia be consecrated to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. There's all kinds of stuff about Russia in this, in these prophecies. 
which is strange because it's 1917 and that was the year of the revolution. And this happened in July. So it was a few months before even the Bolshevik revolution. You look perplexed there, Rob. Well, I was just trying to, um, cause this is all from Portugal, correct? Right. Yeah, it's Portugal. What, um, was there anything significant going on tying Russia to, to the region or like, I mean, uh, well, World War One was happening at that time, and Portugal technically was involved with the Allies in World War One, so they were al- technically allies of Russia. That's the only thing that I could see. I was just thinking, like, it, would Russia have been on the people's mind anyways, or is it just really bizarre? Probably it may have been because of the fact that uh, Russia was experiencing a revolution. I mean, the Tsar had been, we talked about some of this last week, the Tsar had been toppled in March of 1917 and this is July of 1917. So I'm sure it was on people's minds, a lot of people's minds, especially on the allied side, whether Russia was going to stay in the war. So I could see that. And then, uh, but it's interesting that that kind of, um, you know, what, what happens under communism and in, in Russia is not a, not a Catholic country. It's a Russian Orthodox country. Uh, so I don't know why that there would be that the concern of the Blessed Virgin Mary for Russia, you know, unless she just really had a heart for him or something. But the uh, what that what that means, I I, I don't know. But uh, what happens after though is that the Bolshevik Revolution happens and Russia becomes an atheistic society and begins to persecute the church. So there is there is that. Uh, this is the the third secret, okay, which was not revealed supposedly until the nineteen until the sixties, I think. Uh, Written on a sheet of one sheet of paper, the text, uh, this is what Lucia wrote that was her, the third secret of Our Lady of Fatima. The text of the third secret released by the Vatican is handwritten on four sheets of paper. Father Joaquin Alonso, official Fatima archivist for 16 years, reports in his book that Lucy tells us she wrote it on a sheet of paper. In a taped interview, Charles Fiore quoted Malachi Martin as saying the following regarding the text of the third secret. I cooled my heels in the corridor outside the Holy Father's apartments while my boss, Cardinal Bay, was inside debating with the Holy Father and with a group of other bishops and priests and two young Portuguese seminarians who translated the letter, a single page, written in Portuguese for all those in the room. Written in the form of a letter, another reason why critics argue the full Third Secret has not been released is because of indications that the Third Secret was written in the form of a signed letter to the Bishop of Lieri and the text of the Third Secret released by the Vatican, is not written in the form of a letter. Lucia was interviewed by Father Yonkin on February 3rd, 1946, when Father Yonkin asked Lucia when the time would arrive for the third secret. Lucia responded, I communicated the third part in a letter to the Bishop of Liera. Also, Canon Galamba, an advisor to the Bishop of Liera, is quoted as saying, when the Bishop refused to open the letter, Lucy made him promise that it would definitely be open and read to the word either at her death or in 1960, whichever came first. So it was read in 1960, which is around the same time as the Second Vatican Council that we talked about. 
Contains words attributed to the Blessed Virgin Mary. The text of the third secret released by the Vatican contains no words attributed to the Blessed Virgin Mary. So she asserts that the third secret likely begins with the words, in Portugal, the dogma of the faith will always be preserved, etc. Words with Lucia, including her fourth memoir, which were not included, only as a footnote to the text released by the Vatican. So that's somebody doubting the veracity of it, possibly. And then another one is contains information about the apocalypse, apostasy, satanic infiltration of the church. This is probably where Malachi Martin would come down on this. In an interview published in the November 11th, 1984 edition of Jesus Magazine, you know there's a Jesus Magazine? Cardinal Ratzinger, Cardinal Ratzinger was the one who became Benedict XVI, by the way was asked whether he had read the text of the Third Secret and why it had not been revealed. Ratzinger acknowledged that he had read the Third Secret and stated in part that the Third Secret involves the importance of the novisimi and dangers threatening the faith and the life of the Christian and therefore the life of the world. Ratzinger also commented that if, if it is not made public, at least for the time being, it is ordered to prevent religious prophecy from being mistaken for a quest for the sensational. Also, a news article quoted former Philippine ambassador to the Vatican, Howard D., as saying that Colonel Ratzinger had personally confirmed to him that the messages of Akita and Fatima are essentially the same. This must be another um, uh, appearance. Marian apparition. The Akita prophecy, in part, contains the following. The work of the devil will infiltrate even the church. In such a way that one will see cardinals opposing cardinals, bishops against bishops, churches and altars sacked. On May 13th, 2000, Cardinal Soldano announced that the third secret would be released, during which he implied the secret was about the persecutions of Christians in the 20th century that culminated in the failed assassination attempt on Pope John Paul II on 13th, May 1981. In a syndicated radio broadcast, Malachi Martin stated that the third secret doesn't make any sense unless we accept that there will be or that there is in progress a wholesale apostasy amongst clerics and laity in the Catholic Church. Okay. So that's the convoluted story of the third secret of Our Lady of Fatima. Which another thing I found interesting about Malachi Martin was that uh, he accepted, obviously he accepted the validity of the apparition at Fatima, which is accepted by the Catholic Church, but did not accept the apparition of Medjugorje, which is in Croatia, that has gone back, I think either Croatia or Bosnia, but has gone back and forth as being whether it's real or not, and the Catholic Church still has not accepted it. I just kind of funny find it funny that he accepted that and not being one that did not accept the Vatican II Council, he would still accept, not accept something that the church did not accept. Does that make any sense? What I'm saying? Yeah, no, I know. Uh, well, maybe he doesn't accept it for the same reasons that they don't. You know, it yeah. might not be based on their opinion at all. Right. I don't know what that could be because I don't know anything about it. But So that's the uh, convoluted history <clears throat> of the... Uh, if there's anybody out there in the audience that is Catholic and wants to comment on this, please feel free to send us an email because I'm confused. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so what I'm getting out of this basically is um, the third secret was by the author of the said secret or the uh, the messenger, however you want to put it. Yeah. Was it's, a, it's, it's an apocalyptic thing tied to 
Satanism and the church. And they wanted to be either released in 1960 or upon their death. Were they still alive? I think she, (laughs) I'm not sure. I had to look that up. In 1960? Because I was just wondering if when they came out and shared this, if it was, if she disputed it at all. Well, the, 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 actually the, the, the controversy is, is that, um, they had, uh, that the Vatican said that it was something where it was something else about Russia and an attack on the Pope. And she had all these uh, allusions to various right. things that were supposed to be included that were not in their yeah. official. Yeah. She died in 2005, by the way. Uh, so she did not pass away. She was still alive in 1960. Huh. But, but she never uh, disputed it that we know of. Apparently, as far as I know. But uh, then some people have said, and Maliki Martin was one of them, said that, no, that's not what the third secret was. The third secret was actually about the apocalypse, about a coming war. And the Vatican is basically trying to sanitize that by saying it's something that has already happened. In other words, it was about an attack on John Paul the first on a Pope, which was fulfilled by John Paul the first being assassinated. The second assassinated. I see. So that's, sort, of, sort of, I see. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll turn to the world of our more crazy stuff, (laughs) our crazy politics. Um, It's been quite a week for old Donald. Have you kept up with any of that? Like what's happened this week with the, no, I'm hiding from all that stuff at this point. It's, I can't change it. <laughs> the stone's yeah. rolling downhill. Yeah, it's I'm true. Going to stay true. out of its way. Uh, we. This is what what happened this week. Two things. Michael Flynn, national security advisor, who by the time that we read that, I had read that article and we had that show up, had already quit as national security advisor because he was talking. Information came out that he was talking to the Russian ambassador. And there was a lot of discussion about whether that the word sanctions was banded about. In other words, of trying to lift sanctions against Russia, specifically the sanctions that happened back in December that Obama put on Russia because of the quote unquote proof that there was hacking that happened. So that's the sanctions. Apparently Flynn had lied to Mike Pence about something and Trump decided to just go ahead and get his resignation. The second thing, though not as major, was uh Puzdar, the labor secretary, you know, the one that was being that was that had been the CEO of both Carl's Jr. and Hardee's. Right. The fast food guy that apparently would have so much sympathy for 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 the common American working man. Uh, could not get enough votes to even be confirmed. So that means Republic, even Republicans in the Senate said, no, we will not uh, support this guy. Uh, there was a press conference on Thursday that I watched the whole, almost the entire thing that Trump gave 
And it was basically, and, and I thought some of the things that he said were good. And some of the things that he said were, were, were bad. I'm, I'm pretty mixed, mixed on that. I, I don't think it's all bad or all good, but he basically what it came down to was just him having a lot of animosity with the mainstream media, like CNN, especially calling people fake news. You're fake news. You're very fake news. Uh, then putting out a tweet the next day that said the mainstream media are the enemy of the people. Okay. Trump did say something very interesting that uh, he's he's gone uh, that he basically accused the CIA of or, or, or some intelligence agency of leaking the information about Flynn. So then he said that he had to do what he had to do. So he basically blamed them for leaking it. Uh, <laughs> I talked about the the deep state. We talked about that last time and what that meant. And man, we are in a rock between a rock and a hard place, brother. What we have got going on right now is Trump saying that he's going to go after the intelligence community, restructure it the way he wants it. And the intelligence community basically pushing back. Well, yeah, because he wants to be in absolute control and that's not how it's supposed to work. Yeah, there, there's various things that are supposed to be set in place to keep our president in check, and he's he's attacking that. Like, right? Everybody should have a problem with this. Democrat, Republican, whether you watch Fox News or whether you know you read, some, you know, some crazy left wing magazine, it doesn't matter. This is the foundations of our country are put together to keep powers in check. And I and I agree with you. But I don't know if necessarily the intelligence agencies are the ones that need to do it because no, but attacking them for just out of as out of control as he is. Absolutely. Absolutely. But him attacking them for releasing information that is pretty valid and important and keeping something horrible from happening. They shouldn't be criticized for that either. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, I have a clip here. Yes, we have a clip and this is rather long. It's about five minutes long. Uh, this is Glenn Greenwald. Okay. Hardly a Trump supporter. Um, Glenn Greenwald is a, um, journalist. I forget what newspaper that he wrote for, but, uh, he was one of the big ones that, um, broke the Edward Snowden story. Remember Edward Snowden, the guy who, the, the the big leak about how the major tech companies were conspiring <laughs> with the government and the intelligence agencies to spy on us. Yes. Basically. Uh, he was one of the people that uh, supported Snowden, wrote a, uh, released a lot of this information. Greenwald lives now in Brazil, apparently with his boyfriend, but he lives in Brazil because I don't think he really wants to come back to the United States because I think he's on the shit list, whether it be for Obama or for Trump. Huh. So this is hardly someone that supports Donald Trump. And this is actually a clip from Democracy Now!, which is about one of the most left-wing organizations that you can possibly get. So let's play this clip and just kind of let this sink in. I was amazed to hear him say this. But this goes right into what we've been talking about with the deep state and how now the phrase deep state has become about as much as a meme as cash me outside. 
Yeah, I threw that in. <laughs> the deep state, although there's no precise or scientific definition, generally refers to the agencies in Washington that are permanent power factions. They stay and exercise power, even as presidents who are elected come and go. They typically exercise their power in secret, in the dark, and so they're barely subject to democratic accountability if they're subject to it at all. It's agencies like the CIA, the NSA, and the other intelligence agencies that are essentially designed to disseminate disinformation and deceit and propaganda and have a long history of doing not only that, but also have a long history of the world's worst war crimes, atrocities, and death squads. This is who not just people like Bill Kristol, but lots of Democrats are placing their faith in, are trying to empower, are cheering for as they exert power separate and apart from, in fact, in opposition to the political officials to whom they're supposed to be subordinate. And it, you go, this is not just about Russia. You go all the way back to the campaign. And what you saw was that leading members of the intelligence community, including Mike Morrell, who was the acting CIA chief under President Obama, and Michael Hayden, who ran both the CIA and the NSA under George W. Bush, were very outspoken supporters of Hillary Clinton. In fact, Michael Morrell went to the New York Times and Michael Hayden went to the Washington Post during the campaign to praise Hillary Clinton and to say that Donald Trump had become a recruit of Russia. The CIA and the intelligence community were vehemently in support of Clinton and vehemently opposed to Trump from the beginning. And the reason was, was because they liked Hillary Clinton's policies better than they liked Donald Trump's. One of the main priorities of the CIA for the last five years has been a proxy war in Syria designed to achieve regime change um, with the Assad regime. Hillary Clinton was not only for that, she was critical of Obama for not allowing it to go further and wanted to impose a no-fly zone in Syria and confront the Russians. Donald Trump took exactly the opposite view. He said, we shouldn't care who rules Syria. We should allow the Russians and even help the Russians kill ISIS and Al-Qaeda and other people in Syria. So Trump's agenda that he ran on was completely antithetical to what the CIA wanted. Clinton's was exactly what the CIA wanted. And so they were behind her. And so they've been trying to undermine Trump for many months throughout the election. And now that he won, they are not just undermining him with leaks, but actively subverting him. There's claims that they're withholding information from him on the grounds that they don't think he should have it and can be trusted with it. They are empowering themselves to enact policy. Now, I happen to think that the Trump presidency is extremely dangerous. You just listed off in your news uh, 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 your newscast that led the show many reasons. They want to dismantle the environment. They want to eliminate the safety net. They want to empower billionaires. They want to en enact bigoted uh, policies against Muslims and immigrants and so many others. And it is important to resist them. And there are lots of really great ways to resist them, such as getting courts to restrain them, citizen activism, and most important of all, having the Democratic Party engage in self-critique to ask itself how it can be a more effective political force in the United States after it has collapsed on all levels. That isn't what this resistance is now doing. What they're doing instead is trying to take maybe the only faction worse than Donald Trump, which is the deep state, the CIA, with its histories of atrocities, and say they ought to almost engage in like a soft coup where they take the elected president and prevent him from enacting his policies. And I think it is extremely dangerous to do that. Um, 
even if you're somebody who believes that both the CIA and the deep state on the one hand and the Trump presidency on the other are extremely dangerous, as I do, there's a huge difference between the two, which is that Trump was democratically elected and is subject to democratic controls, as these courts just demonstrated, as the media is showing, as citizens are proving. But on the other hand, the CIA was elected by nobody. They're barely subject to democratic controls at all. And so to urge that the, the CIA and the intelligence community empower itself to undermine the elected branches of government is insanity. That is a prescription for destroying democracy overnight in the name of saving it. And yet that's what so many, not just neocons, but the neocons allies in the Democratic Party are now urging and cheering. And it's incredibly warped and dangerous to watch them do that. Okay, so I revamp my earlier statement. (laughs) Yeah, that's frightening that is very frightening and i uh, i see what you mean now Uh uh-huh they're um you know the intelligence community is a very very unchecked environment like he's saying Mm -hmm. and i think i think you're probably right they should stay out of all of it (laughs) yeah well the the thing is is that um i would disagree with one thing that he said that they think that they're trying to, um, they're undermining democracy, thinking that they're trying to save it. They're not trying to save democracy. They're just trying to save themselves. They don't really care about how bad Trump is going to be for democracy. They care about how bad Trump is going to be for the intelligence community, for CIA, for NSA, FBI, whatever they are. And I'm more, I'm more, um, just the way that I am, you know, from my studies about the CIA and all the bad shit that they have done, uh, it would not surprise me that it would be the CIA. You know, back in the, uh, back during the <clears throat> campaign, you know, Michael Hayden was on Bill Maher and Michael Hayden, uh, I believe he was in the NSA, but he's definitely a CIA director. And uh, this guy, I mean, he's one of, I mean, to me, I mean, this guy scares me. I mean, he's a former general, about as military as you can get, and then as about as intelligence community as you can get, as about as neoconservative as you can get. I mean, he was one of Bush's apparatchiks back in when Bush was in power. And uh, he just goes on there and says, like, yeah, we're, you know, if Trump does anything, we're going to try to push back. And basically almost calling, almost saying that you would be the, a case of a military coup d'etat that that bad almost uh the other night you know i was watching bill maher again because i do w- watch that show I, I i enjoy watching it um and because it makes me think and uh they were talking about with this one guy that uh is uh started off in naval intelligence and works for the nsa i believe and he was talking about how about Trump and about how the, the the intelligence agency is against him and these leaks that are coming out and Bill Maher basically being on the liberal side of the equation is saying things like, uh, well, you know, if he's dangerous, then I support what the CIA is doing. I support what they're doing. I'm sitting there. I'm, I'm watching this like this is unbelievable. Like <laughs> I cannot I can't I can't believe that I'm hearing this. Yeah. Trump's I, I, I don't support Trump. 
but it, it but it's like you know I can't really sit there and support the the CIA and what they're doing and say that they're the heroes in this situation. I just can't because they're not. They're not looking out for us. They're looking out for themselves, looking out for what's going to happen. And the same, you know, if you believe whatever you believe about Kennedy, you know, if the if is a CIA the CIA or a faction in the CIA pulled off the Kennedy assassination, they did it because he was threatening them specifically. And I don't really want to get into that whole history because that'll give you like another three hours. But, and then Bill Maher says something about, well, you know, Kennedy might've been, you know, we don't know what happened. He, you know, he was sleeping with these, uh, he used another word, but he said he was sleeping with uh, East German spies and, and like, that could have been the reason they had to get rid of him. I'm like, what, what are you talking about? The bad thing about this is, is that this kind of action just makes all the Trump supporters love him even more because they think that he is like JFK and he's not in in no way is he is he like JFK. He's about the opposite as you can get. But people think, oh, he's standing up to the establishment. And so they take this and then they take other things that he says, like the uh the the press is the enemy of the people. This is why I'm saying we are in a rock and a hard place. This is almost just like, how do you want your fat for your fascism medium or well done? I mean, this is honestly where we are. And then you have the left that's in the equation that would just, you know, a lot of them don't really care about democracy either. So this is what I was talking about when we, you know, apparently this is the uh, evil coming out, lurking in the mud. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've. But remember, we we you know we talk about rainbows and skittles on this show. Well, this is why since the election began, <clears throat> the whole election process. That's how. That's that's just where I've been standing. It's like you know, it's not the lesser of two evils anymore. It's just. Which which regime do you want in place? Yeah. You know? And now apparently, I guess Hillary's not around anymore. So now do you want the intelligence community to, to run everything or do you want Trump? Boy, that's a good choice. <laughs> man, I voted for the pothead, man. I voted for Gary Johnson. Okay. That's all I'm going to say. Anyway, how are we doing on time? We're good, sir. Okay. Well, uh... One more thing I kind of want to go through. I thought this would be interesting. Um, by the way, oh, I want to read this first. This is from at real Donald J. Trump. The real scandal here is that classified information is illegally given out by intelligence like candy. Very un-American. <laughs> yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Next week, we're going to have on William Ramsey. We're going to talk about um, Aleister Crowley, but more like Aleister Crowley, the people that we, that he, that, that he influenced. And uh, I thought this would be interesting, kind of a teaser for next time, which is actually tonight for us. But um, 
thought this was interesting. Two of the greatest, um, I don't know if I'll read this whole thing, but two of the greatest comic book writers have been in an occult war for 25 years. Two of the world's greatest comic book writers are wizards. No, seriously. Their work has not only changed comics forever, they've spilled over into literature and especially film. A lot of the movies you loved and even more of the movie plots you loved were influenced by these two guys. So even if you've never actually heard of Alan Moore and Grant Morrison, you know their work. Both men are British. Both are only a few years apart in age. Both present themselves as rebels of a sort. Both are passionately dedicated to a personal practice of the occult, and their occult writing has been taken seriously and influenced the scene. But here's the kicker. Moore and Morrison freaking despise each other, so much so that it's actually bled into their work. Some of the greatest comics of the last 25 years have been a direct product of Moore and Morrison's wizard fight. (laughs) (laughs) First, some background. Both men started out writing comics in the 1970s and became famous in the 1980s. Internationally, Moore became famous a few years earlier than Morrison. Alan Moore is probably best famous for V for for Vendetta, From Hell, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and a little miniseries called Watchmen that changed comics forever. You ever read Watchmen? No, I haven't. Oh, very well worth it. Morrison wrote Animal Man in Doom Patrol and The Invisibles. He was the driving force behind the Vertigo line of DC Comics, which focused on weird fiction with occult horror overtones, which had a huge influence on subsequent movies and TV. His work was groundbreaking, but he was also responsible for incredibly significant work on mainstream comics like the X-Men, the Justice League, Superman, and Batman, radically renovating each of these titles and producing some of their most memorable stories of recent years. Moore did mainstream superhero comics, too. In the 1980s, his writing on Green Lantern had a significant influence on that character. He turned Swamp Thing from a failing monster comic into a major character, which I have all those, by the way. (laughs) I used to collect Swamp Thing comic books. I have all of them Alan Moore run, okay, which is... I mean, that's how I, that's how I first came aware of Alan Moore when I was like seven and like it was horror comics. I'm like, my parents took it away from me at one point. <laughs> uh, sorry, really geeking out. Invented John Constantine wrote the, the killing joke for Batman and a couple of Superman stories that were extremely memorable, but he had a falling, but he had a falling out with DC comics over royalties for Watchmen and in opposition to a plan to put rating systems in their comics. After that, he quit working for the big mainstream comic companies and has never looked back. By the early nineties, it was already obvious Moore had issues with Morrison. He claimed to have helped give Morrison a leg up in his career. Morrison later pointed out he was making comics to much less famous ones before Moore had become known at all, and that Morrison in return just ripped off all of Moore's work. Morrison, on the other hand, claimed that Moore's own work was derivative of a 1977 novel called Superfolks, and that Watchmen was not as great as everyone thought, and that Moore wants to take credit for everything great in comics while slagging anyone he sees as competition. Moore has continued to insinuate throughout the years that Morrison has kept ripping off his ideas, once notably saying, I've read Morrison's work twice, first when I wrote it, then when he wrote it. (laughs) (laughs) Snarky. Even the question of which one of them is the more occult comic book guy has been a bone of contention. Moore's coming out as as a magician was better known and got way more press, and he did that in 1993. On the other hand, Morrison was publicly talking publicly about being involved in chaos magic. For the uninitiated, that's with a K. A few years earlier than that, and Morrison has claimed that Moore only decided to come out because Morrison was already public about it. 
It's not as if either one of them were really secretive about it. Moore's magical ideas were already mostly evident in his early work, and Morrison's pre-1993 work was already highly esoteric. Moore's V for Vendetta openly espoused Gnostic concepts and Aleister Crowley's magical philosophy. Mr. Crowley! Dun, dun, dun. Magically, the two believe in very different things. Neither of them are exactly orthodox, but Moore is a more traditionalist kind of wizard. He's an admirer of Aleister Crowley's Thelemic Magic and the philosophy in his Book of the Law. He appreciates the value of magic as a kind of art form and in turn considers art to be a kind of magic. Grant Morrison is from the school of chaos magic, who practices ma- who, who practice magic that is less worried about rules and ritual and more about trying to get things done. Magic can be done from just about anything as long as you have the right intention. Chaos magicians tend to like mixing up elements from a whole variety of different cultures and history to reinvent it all to fit whatever they're in the mood for and have no problem with doing magic for personal gain or to change the world rather than just for human transcendence. Moore's very loud statement of declaring himself a magician in public may just have been a factor in motivating Morrison to go whole hog with the occult comic book thing when he started on The Invisibles in 1994. The Invisibles is a 1,500-page, 59-issue masterpiece of occult literature. Written in comic book form, its winding plotline tells a tells a single long story with various subplots about a group of occult rebels using magic to try to liberate mankind opposed by a cabal of black magicians in positions of power and authority trying to use sorcery to control and oppress humanity. It is simply put one of the greatest comic series of all time. According to Morrison, if you want to take him at his word and not just assume it's a chaos magician metaphor, he was told parts of the story by space aliens when he was abducted by them in Kathmandu. Okay. (laughs) The entire comic was intentionally designed to function as a kind of spell meant to create powerful changes in consciousness in whoever reads it. It also had weird effects on Morrison's own life. His character, King Mob, was meant to be based on Morrison's ideal version of himself as an occult rebel hero. Morrison started to find out that when he wrote bad things happening to King Mob, bad things happened to himself. When King Mob nearly died from magical bacteria in one of the comic's issues, Morrison himself caught a life-threatening infection. Later, King Mob was shot and almost killed, and Morrison himself had to be hospitalized for blood poisoning. After that, Morrison started writing King Mob as having great things happening to him, and Morrison started to have unexpected, unexpected fame and fortune of his own. That's interesting. While The Invisibles hasn't got its own movie or TV series yet, it probably, it's probably too weird and too hard to make. It was enormously influential on a ton of sci-fi and fantasy writers, as well as filmmakers. In particular, the creators of The Matrix were, high, were hugely influenced by The Invisibles. So here's where we get to the part that here's so here's where we get to the part that most articles on the more Morrison feud have missed. I'm a comics reader, but probably not an expert enough to really detail the history of quality of work other than at the fan level. But I am an expert of occultism, and I can say this: the war between Moore and Morrison isn't just a writer's fight; it is a wizard's feud. It is two very different views on magic using comics as a medium to fire salvos at each other. A few years after Morrison started on The Invisibles, Alan Moore came out with Promethea, a 32-issue comic about a young woman who becomes the latest host for the spirit of an ancient super-powerful demigoddess of the imagination. Incarnating in the modern world, she takes on the role of a Wonder Woman-style superheroine, which I have read Promethea in its entirety. Uh, Heather, let me borrow it. And it is... uh, it is basically Moore's occult philosophy. Huh. Okay. Very, 
very much borrow from Crowley. Like the Invisibles, Prometheus is full of occult symbolism and esoteric philosophical ideas. It's lavishly beautiful. It's lavishly beautiful and brilliantly written. Just as the Invisibles serve as a showcase for Morrison's own ideas about chaos magic, Buddhism, conspiracy theories, psychedelia, UFO fanaticism, esoteric psychology, punk apocalyptic punk politics and apocalyptism Promethea becomes a showcase for Moore's ideas about magic, Thelema, the Kabbalah, Gnosticism, art as magic, imagination as reality, transcending the shallowness of the modern world and apocalyptism. Yes, both comics end with the end of the world, but the way these end up is very different from each other and reflect the different views of the two magicians in the invisibles. The apocalypse is a humanity transcending singularity. In Promethea, it is a divine union which makes us all more totally human than ever. This difference, like almost all the content in both comics, serves to highlight how Moore and Morrison have very different ideas about occult philosophy. Morrison on magic. Everyone does magic all the time in different ways. Life plus significance equals magic. And more on magic. You have to be very careful what you say, because if you suddenly declare yourself to be a magician without any knowledge of what that entails, then you are likely to wake up and to discover that is exactly what you are. I could have picked some other quote from Moore, like his manifesto about how magic should be stripped of its nostalgia or its introverted edginess and be treated as an expression of art and how learning how to use words is what magic is all about, that you cast a spell in the same sense of spelling a word. But the quote above in some ways seems more appropriate. Morrison wants to be precise and coherent, and he wants to present an image of himself in everything he does. He's a kind of preacher for magic. Moore doesn't give a crap what you think of him, and he just wants to drop hints of, hints of wisdom at you, and then you need to figure the rest out yourself. Moore seems seemed to be mocking Morrison's style of chaos magic in Promethea, basically calling it wankery. In one scene in the comic, Moore has a character point out that in the 1920s, ritual magic was all about turbans, tuxedos, and tarts and tiaras, but now modern chaos magic is all about sigil, stubble, and self-abuse. In response, Morrison calls Moore's Promethea elitist. He seems to want magic to be both accessible to everyone and revolutionary at the same time. As a wizard myself, who is this guy? <laughs> I say that both comics are absolute masterpieces of modern occult literature. Promethea probably includes the greatest explanation ever made of the tree of life, the roadmap of traditional Western magic. It's glorious. The Invisibles is probably the most complete compendium of occult ideas in the modern age. That's how they're different. Promethea shows you magic, teaches you why it's important, and invites you to make your own humanity magical. The Invisibles doesn't give you a choice. Just reading it changes you. It blows your mind like it was a supernatural drug. It's not an instruction. It's an experience. But it's too easy to try to write the conflict off by painting more as some kind of grumpy old traditionalist and Morrison as a bold, in-your-face counterculture rebel. Remember, it was Moore who argued his way out of mainstream comics forever. On the other hand, Morrison plays the rebel, but has become an icon of mainstream comics, though anyone reasonable would agree he's transformed that mainstream and helped enormously to raise the quality of mainstream comic writing. Okay, and then he goes on to talk about um, Watchmen and another one that Moore did. Uh, yeah, I thought that was very, very interesting. and kind of sets up for next week, um, talking about some of the people that influenced by Aleister Crowley. So, yeah. How do you become a wizard? Is that like being a producer? You just I gotta, don't know. I think we need to ask Aaron David. You just got to say I you're think a wizard. Aaron David's a wizard. I believe it. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. He's got like walking sticks and stuff. I, I, Randall Carlson's a wizard. I'm pretty sure. But he looks the part. He, yeah, he definitely looks the part. 
I mean, you're, you're looking the part yourself these days. You got I'm, the long hair, you got the robe, you got the beard. I'm working on it. The beard is getting slowly more gray. Every time my daughter says the word boyfriend, it gets <laughs> spreads it a little bit to one side or the other. And, and that's two daughters, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, no. Yeah, I figure I only have a few months left. <laughs> no, don't die on me. No, well, just till I'm all silver. Oh, okay. Okay. Until you, you, you begin to look more like Gandalf. Yes. Do you want to have a wizard battle in here one t- sometime? Absolutely. Where you get Aaron in the studio and have a have a has a wi- have a wizard off a wizard duel. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, long. I think. Where are we at? About two hours now. Yeah. So I think we're going to close the show here. Um, join us next week, guys. We're going to have William Ramsey back. Uh, we had him on. Back in 2014, uh, talking about Aleister Crowley and his other book, Abomination, about the uh, West Memphis Three, uh, he's has a kind of a different bent on that case than most people do. He thinks that they are guilty of what they did, but uh, we're not going to be talking about that. Uh, may mention a little bit about that, but uh, we're going to talk about his book, Children of the Beast, which is, as I said before, people that have been influenced by Aleister Crowley, how Crowley's philosophy has kind of permeated society. And I think that was, uh, especially with people like Alan Moore and apparently Grant Morrison. I mean, you think about Alan Moore, how much you have Watchmen, the extraordinary gentleman, a V for vendetta, how much from hell has much, how much of his stuff has been made, uh, into film. And he's very influential in the culture. Uh, so we're going to be talking about that. Also, going to talk a little bit about Pizzagate too, some of his studies on it and see where we are at with that at the moment. I really want to get his, his thoughts on that and his opinions. Uh, someone that's looked into it a little bit more than we have. So Rob, if uh, nothing else to add, I think we'll call it. All right. Sounds good. Thanks right, everyone guys. for listening. Absolutely. Uh, tell everybody about our Patreon <laughs> and uh, all that good stuff. Yeah. So, you know, first of all, we love all the feedback that we get from you guys on Facebook or through email or, you know, we started doing this Patreon thing to kind of congeal that all a little bit more, give you guys a little extra, you know, kind of make it worth your while. And at the same time, you know, help us pay a fraction of the electric bill and the hosting costs. So you can go to patreon.com slash conspiranormal. Or there's links from our web page at uh, com. There's also a donate button on the website. If you don't want to subscribe, you don't want a monthly thing, but just want to contribute, you can throw us you know, anything through there as well. Or another way, if you don't want to spend money, which I totally understand, is go to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to the show and just give us a quick little five-star rating and a little review because we really enjoy that. And I think that nice. occasionally we piss somebody off and those people are way more likely to post a review than of all course. of you wonderful people that like the show. So, you we know, did, we did get a good review the other day though. We did. And I'd like to start reading some of those. I mean, we've read some of the bad ones, especially if they have like, you know, constructive criticism because we do appreciate that as well. Sure, but, sure. you know, we love you guys. And if you like the show, just take, 30 seconds or a minute out of your life and go do that. And we greatly appreciate it. Well, let's see here. Um, I can, let's see, let me pull up that, that new review. Uh, this is a, a good review. Uh, I think I, for some reason, cannot see it. Oh, which I could see it the other day, but that's weird. Anyway, it was a, it was a review about, uh, how, they they like some of our reviews and especially stuff about like how we talk about esoteric things. 
Nice. For some reason, iTunes is being cooperative and not, oh, one of my most listened to esoteric podcasts. I really enjoy Adam's interviewing style and the diversity of guests that this podcast provides. I have been impressed with the breadth of Adam's knowledge of history and the esoteric. I also like the fact that the show doesn't take itself too seriously. Recommended. That's from J.I.F. Pez. So. Thank you, Mr. Pez. And we'll read a few more next week. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, guys. Uh, join us next time on Conspiracy Normal. And there's nothing from Luke this week. No, uh-huh. no snappy comebacks. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.